This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business, and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. 11% of the United Kingdom's armed forces are women, and women hold more than 17% of UK defense business jobs. The small numbers prompted British Army vet Angela Owen to start an organization dedicated to getting more women in both sectors. It's called Women in Defense UK, and it includes women and men who are working to improve the gender balance in Britain's defense community. I spoke with Angela about how her organization is engaging individuals and challenging businesses in pursuit of that goal and how the COVID-19 pandemic is impacting the UK armed forces and defense sector. Angela, welcome to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Thanks so much for joining me virtually. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really excited to be talking with you. Well, let's talk about Women in Defense UK. Is it true this group started on LinkedIn? Yeah, um, started on LinkedIn in 2011, really just as a very small networking group. Uh, I was just interested to see what would happen with it. And what made you want to start it? So I'm ex-British Army, which is heavily male-dominated. And I, I left the Army in 2008 and joined a consulting company called PA Consulting. But I was working in the defense and security sector there. Uh, so it was still in a pretty heavily male-dominated sector. And I would go along to seminars and conferences. And I would usually be one of, I don't know, half a dozen women in the room from 100 men. And it was just so nice to see the other women that I thought, let's set up a networking group and see what happens. That's how it started. And now, how does it operate? It started as a networking group, but it's grown, correct? It's grown incredibly. I really had no idea where it would go. I had no great vision. Um, we now run all sorts of things. We, uh, we're probably best known for our annual awards, which has had, I don't know, 1,400 nominations. We're now in our fifth year of that. So that's a national award scheme. We also run a, a mentoring scheme. We run networking events. Uh, we've got a really strong presence on Twitter, um, the awards night. Uh, I'm going to boast now, so forgive me. The awards dinner night last year had over 4.2 million impressions alone on Twitter. And we run development with the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. So there's an awful lot that we do now, and it's just grown exponentially. You've used the platform to bring together women and men from across the UK's defense enterprise. Can you talk a bit about how you did that and maybe expand a little bit more on the awards that you give? I've always been really, really keen that it shouldn't, that the, the group shouldn't be focused purely on maybe the UK armed forces or the Ministry of Defence, but that I wanted it, it to be as broad a Kirk as possible. So our membership includes major defence companies in the UK. It includes defence third sector charitable companies. We also, in, in the awards, and I'll come on to that in a second, you know, we've had nominations from GCHQ, from MI5, from MI6, from the Houses of Parliament security team, in addition to British Army, Royal Air Force, Royal Navy, Ministry of Defence, and all of the defence companies. 
But the awards are probably the thing that I'm proudest of. We have 10 categories. Some are open to individual women, some are open to teams, some are open to organisations. But the whole ethos of them is that we want to recognise and value and show that they're valued and celebrate the incredible achievements of women and men and any gender in any team that works in defence of the United Kingdom. And they are, they really, they strike a chord. People want to be nominated or are delighted when they are nominated. Organisations across defence want to be part of them. And were women in particular not getting the recognition that they deserved prior to your starting the awards? Tell me a little bit more about that. So I think, I think women were getting recognition, but almost recognition for, for what they were doing, but not, not recognition for the fact that they were doing incredible things. And by the way, they're a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm not so keen to see is um, someone being sort of put forward for an award because she's a mother um, and she's doing incredible things. Actually, that's the wrong way around. It is this woman is doing incredible things. And by the way, she happens to be a woman. The fact that they, people are being recognised, women are being recognised, means that they can stand up and be proud of the fact that they're female and not almost sometimes feel they have to not apologise for the fact that they're female, but perhaps not be able to be authentically themselves at work. And I will ask you more about that in a moment, but I want to follow up. You mentioned bringing women and men together, and specifically you brought together senior men in the UK Armed Forces uh, to the table for discussions with more junior women and men to answer their questions about their div- their vision rather for diversity and inclusion. How did you do that, and what was the impact? Do you know, we were incredibly lucky. Um, in about 2015... We thought, we're going to be a little bit cheeky. We're going to go to the new head of the British Army, who at the time was General Sir Nick Carter. He had just announced his maximising talent agenda. Uh, And we're going to say, we would like to interview you. And we would like to interview you in front of an invited audience. Uh, And he said yes. We were astonished that he said yes. But he said yes. And the way that we did the interview um, was that he knew the first question that was coming, but he had no idea what other questions we were going to put to him. We went out to the army, to women in the army, and we said, okay, we are interviewing the chief of the general staff. If you could ask him a question, what would you ask him? And so we were able to sort of take the questions, the themes, and ask him what people wanted to ask, but perhaps felt Um, obstructed by hierarchy um, or the chain of command or just felt they couldn't ask. And so we were able to put those questions to him. We were also able to do some research on speeches that he'd given and, you know, say, uh, ask him questions like or put put to him things like in a speech that you did in, I don't know, uh, 2015, whenever you talked about a soldier, you used the pronoun he and his. You never once used she or her. When it comes to language, don't you think you should be leading the way? It was fantastic. He was fantastic. He, he answered everything. But what we managed to do by doing that was just to get things in front of him. He listened. 
he got what we were talking about. It helped to move the conversation forward. Once we'd interviewed him, we then interviewed the first Sea Lord, who's the head of the Royal Navy. We interviewed the deputy head of the Royal Air Force. We then interviewed the Commandant General of the Royal Marines about women and the commandos uh, and what they were doing to change everything so that women could join the commandos. And all of these are massive things. You know, women joining the commandos was massive for the United Kingdom. So we were incredibly fortunate to be able to, to interview these really senior guys. It seems as if you got a really positive response in the military uh, to opening up this conversation. Did you have to do any convincing in order to get this reaction or did it just kind of happen organically? I would say that as soon as we've got the, the chief of the general staff, the, the, the army, the others just happened. We just feel incredibly lucky that these really senior people trust us uh, and trust us to have these conversations. Are there any women in line for any of the top jobs in the armed forces in the UK? So the, I mean, the stats in the UK and the armed forces are great. Um, I was looking at them before I joined the call. The latest stats that have been published were October uh, last year. But if you look overall, the United Kingdom armed forces are about 89% male, so 11% female. They are improving. The RAF, the Royal Air Force, are, you know, we've got by far the, the biggest proportion of women, but that's only 15%. But when you look at the senior levels, the picture isn't, isn't at all good, but again, it is improving. Uh, but as I say, the latest stats, so colonel upwards, I think what you would call a bird colonel upwards, the percentage of females is 4.5%. So it really does tail off when you get to the senior levels. Again, this is changing and it's changing very quickly, but is there going to be a chief of the general staff anytime soon who's a woman? Well, we're some way off that. We are some way off that. And to be fair, you can't make someone head of the army overnight. They have to have done the right training, the right development, had the right experience, done the right jobs uh, to fit them and to make them the right person for the job. So it's not something that can quickly change. On the positive, every single job, I think, now is open to women, which for the United Kingdom is a very recent change. You know, they can now join the, 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 the infantry, the armoured corps, um, RAF regiment. They can do every job. Uh, so that is a big change, but that will take time to work through. Let me ask you about your personal experience in the British Army. You were talking about the demographics and the the statistics and how things are, are changing. And there are more and more women being in the positions to rise the ranks, so to speak. What was your experience like? How much smaller were the numbers of women when you were serving? Do you know, I can't find the data for how many people were, how many women were in the armed forces, were in the army when I was serving. But I mean... I joined the army a very, very long time ago. Um, I was commissioned in 1976, so you know, a long, long time ago, and it was a very, very different army then. I think that organisations reflect the, the culture and the social mores of, of the time that they operate in. Um, so the army that I joined, uh, women were sort of kept in their own companies, their own squadrons, their own uh, units, and went out to work with the men, but were led by women generally, 
um, and as I said, sort of, you know, were, were housed together and so on. It, it was a very, very different army. The training that I did, we didn't train at the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst. We had our own training establishment a little way down the road. Um, we didn't do things like, I don't know, fire weapons because women weren't armed. We didn't um, do assault courses or anything like that. It was it was a just a completely different army. And of course, if you were if you became pregnant um, right up until about the early nineties, uh, you know you had to be discharged on pregnancy because the belief was that mothers uh, belief was at that time that mothers uh, really wouldn't be able to be a mother and and serve as well. Now it's completely changed, completely changed now, and the the, the maternity leave allowance and policy is really really good. You know the, the pay is great, the paternity leave is good, the paternity pay is good. Uh, it has come full circle. It is sort of unrecognisable nowadays to what it was when I joined. And likely making it much easier for both women and men who are parents to serve their country. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the defense business sector. Uh, you've talked about the numbers in the in the armed forces in, in terms of gender balance. How are women doing in the defense business sector there? It's very, very difficult to get hold of figures. You can see more senior women, but I can't really get hold of good, consistent figures on it. What, what I could talk about, though, is, if it's okay, is talk about the Women in Defence Charter. Oh, absolutely. I was going to ask you about it, but since you brought it up, let's talk about it now, because that is something that you are involved in and help to get started. And it encourages defense companies to sign a pledge to have more representation of women throughout uh, the companies. Absolutely. Absolutely. The Women in Defence Charter is something that Women in Defence UK is involved with, along with the Ministry of Defence and with defence industry. And what we say is that organisations that sign up to the Charter are committing to be the very best at driving inclusion and diversity within their organisation and importantly, providing fair opportunities for women to succeed at all levels. And the, the sign-up to that, it was launched in September last year. The sign-up has been really very, very good indeed. Um, we've got, I don't know, probably nearly 50 companies signed up. And when I say companies, it's, it's not just defence industry, for example, you know, um, Airbus, Babcock, BAA Systems, Boeing, uh, General Dynamics... I'm just running down, uh, Leonardo, Lockheed Martin, loads of, of big names. They're all very familiar here in Washington. Well, I thought they would be. I thought they would be. But we've also, the British Army has signed, the Royal Air Force has signed, the Royal Navy has signed, the Ministry of Defence has signed. So it really is um, something that is working across the defence enterprise. The Charter commits organisations to supporting the, the progression of women, as I've said, it recognises that uh, organisations will have different starting points on the diversity journey. And so it asks that each organisation sets its own targets, but that it reports on those targets. So, you know, we, we leave the targets up to individual organisations, but we, once they've set them and shared them, we ask that they report on them on an on a, a, a annual basis. So, yeah, I, I think it's... It is still early days. We've got a good team working on it. We've got lots of volunteers who are working hard. 
Do you think having them sign the pledge is a, a useful tool in helping companies move toward the, the goal of, of greater inclusiveness? We didn't have to work very hard to get companies to sign up. It was astonishing how the word spread. Companies wanted to sign up. And I think it will work as long as the team that are the steering group, the, the sort of the, the members who are driving it, really work hard behind the scenes to help companies, you know, to help collect the data, to get a report out that shows um, how companies are doing, that helps to share best practice so that we can all learn from each other. Some, everyone is doing slightly different things. If we can pull that together and really learn from best practice, it, it's just got to help. But there is a real, a real will. People want this to work. People want more women um, to be involved and people want more women at the, the middle and, and the senior levels. Well, as we wrap up here, I, got, I have a couple of questions I want to pose to you. I want to circle back to the point you made earlier about women feeling comfortable in their own skin and feeling at ease to be themselves in positions where they may be in a in an organization or in a workspace that's male-dominated. And you've talked about why it's important that women recognize that they can succeed as women and not just, and I'm quoting you here, pseudo-men. What do you mean by that phrase? So when I was in the army, I felt that I had to be, and this is just me personally, I felt that I had to be better than the man alongside me. That I, I knew I wasn't as strong, just physically as strong, but I knew that I could outrun most of them. I knew that I had to work incredibly hard. Or I felt that I had to work incredibly hard to prove that I was better I almost felt that I had to be a, a pseudo-man, so not make too much of my femininity, not be authentically myself as a woman. And I really did find it was incredibly hard work trying to be something I wasn't. You know, being virtually a phony takes an awful lot of effort. So as soon as I recognised that and brought my more authentic self to the table... When I said what I really thought, perhaps, when I brought the more feeling side of my nature to the table, I actually became a better officer. When I, when I realised that I had something more to bring as a woman, I, I brought more value. But it took me a very long time to realise that and to stop sort of trying to fit in. And I think as a minority, when you are a minority... And being a woman in the army, when there's only 10% of you, can be really lonely. Um, so you, you do try and fit in. You do try and be one of the, maybe one of the crowd. And, or at least I felt that. So, yeah, it, it was a sort of a growing realisation that, please, I don't want to be a man. I'm not a man. I'm a woman. And I should be proud of the fact that I'm a woman. And I should value the skills that I bring and not try and suppress them. Does that make sense? It makes complete sense. And I don't think you're alone in sometimes feeling this way or having felt this way early in your career. I, I've heard similar stories from other women that I've talked to in this podcast. So I don't think you're alone at all. And I think people listening will probably see a bit of themselves in what you've described. What advice do you give to young women who want 
to have a career in defense, either in the defense industry, private sector, or in the armed services. If it's right for you, grab it. Absolutely grab it, because the opportunities are mammoth. If you're an engineer, and if you want to learn to be an engineer, just look at the equipment that you could be working on. Just look at the things you could be doing, whether it's simple things in the army, like building bridges or tanks or working on fast jets in the, in the RAF or in defence industry, building submarines, building aircraft carriers. For me, defence gives you so many opportunities to really do what you want to do, but you're doing it for a reason as well. You're doing it because you're defending the nation. So it's, you're doing it for a just cause. You're doing it for a just cause. You've got a reason to get out of bed in the morning. Because no matter what you're doing, whether you're driving a truck or whatever, you're doing it for a just cause, which is defending the nation. And that's got to be worth it, if it's right for you. And I can't let you go without asking you about the gender balance of your own organization, since we've talked about that in the defense industry. You've noted that uh, men are a part of it. What, what's the balance there? So the, the best figures I've got are our Twitter uh, accounts, where the balance is 50-50. And I am so proud of that, so incredibly proud of that, because it's fantastic to have you know, women really involved in this, but we need men really involved in this as well. And so to have that level of support from all genders, I think is absolutely critical. And I'm really proud of that. I'm really proud of the gender balance in the organization. Well, Angela Owen, thank you so much for being here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.